Welcome to the evening message for Pearl Presbyterian Church. Uh, before we begin tonight, I want to let you know what we have for you. Our intern, Levi Bertson, will be preaching this evening. You will notice he is not in our sanctuary. He recorded this message in the chapel at Reformed Theological Seminary at the campus across town, where he is living and where he is very thankfully practicing social distancing. I asked him if he wanted to see me in person. He said, no way. So I think that was restraint on his part. He really wanted to see me, I think. But we're very grateful for Levi. We're very grateful for his ministry to us here at the church. And by the way, uh, in addition to preaching for us tonight, he's continued each week to post his Sunday School series on the book of Zechariah. I strongly recommend that you check that out. Uh, we are putting all of those messages up. If you go to the website, pearlprez.com, and if you go to the sermon section, you will actually see his Sunday School series is posted there. So I have heard from many of you as you've been listening to his Sunday School. You've been greatly blessed by that message, that series. I have been listening along, although I'm a little behind, uh, but I'm very grateful for Levi. I'm grateful for his ministry to us as a church, and, and I encourage you to begin listening to that if you're not already. Uh, before we get to Levi's message, I want to read a passage of scripture, and then I want to open us with a word of prayer. So let's transition over to uh, the message from Levi after that. Psalm 57, verses 2 and 3 say this, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, you're a fountain of life and joy. And you continue to share and pour forth your delights for your people. Your love, power, and delight show forth in the creation where you show us not only an ongoing care and provision, but where you continually display for us the truth that you care for your creatures. In you all things hold together, and without you nothing was made that has been made. We praise you, our God, for being our creator, for being our sustainer. You made us, O oh God, and you care for us, and Yet we are so aware also that we use the very lives and bodies that you made for us to turn from your path and to turn from your will for our lives. Even in your first commandment, O oh God, you tell us not to love anything more than we love you. You command us, in fact, to worship you rightly and to meditate on you with honor and adoration, desire and esteem. Yet in the very things you command, we do fall so very short. And not only that, O oh God, but you forbid us in the very same command not to love ourselves, not to set our affections on anything created, but to ultimately love you alone. You command us not to love corrupt and low things and instead to meditate on you. You, O oh God, who are pure and holy. Forgive us, O oh God, because we haven't done this. We have most certainly failed in this way to keep your law. The things we have to thank you for are as numberless and diverse as your creation. We could thank you for the sweeping beauty of the world that you've placed us in, for the green vegetation and life that grows around us. It is suitable, O oh God, that 
we recall that the rain falls upon us not only by virtue of us or for any good that we've done, but because it pleases you to do good to your people, to do good to your creatures. Not only do you cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, but you find delight in even the smallest of your creatures, most of whom we cannot and will not ever see. And yet you, our God, number them all and know them individually. We praise and thank you, O God, for your meticulous care for us and for the world that you've given us to live in. This evening, Lord, we ask you in prayers of supplication that you would rebuke Satan the tempter, the one who constantly accuses the brethren. Covenant, Lord, we ask you to rebuke him, for you have chosen Jerusalem despite the filth of its sins. Let tempted, troubled souls be as brands plucked right out of a blazing fire. Give special help to those who are so overwhelmed with problems. They refuse to be comforted. Be with them when every remembrance of their life troubles them. Enable them to trust the final outworkings of your mercy. Let them be confident that in due time they will rejoice in your salvation. Though you slay them, let them keep trusting you. And now be with the rest of us this evening as we remember the immense privilege we have to hear your word and to give you glory. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, good evening. Uh, it is once again a joy and a privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you once again. We're going to continue our series in the Psalms. If you remember, I'm going to be preaching on selected Psalms for the foreseeable future. And tonight we are in Psalm chapter 6. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 6 and follow along as we work our way through this text. I pray as I prepared this sermon and as I'm now recording this and bringing this to you, I've been praying that the Lord would work powerfully through his word and that you would find this psalm to be a blessing to you. So Psalm chapter 6, hear now the word of our God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, According to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, do not rebuke me with your wrath, nor chastise me according to your anger. Have mercy on me, O Yahweh, for I am weak. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are terrified, and my soul is exceedingly terrified. And you, O Yahweh, how long? Return to me, O Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me according to your covenant faithfulness. For there, there is no one in death who will remember you. In Sheol, who will give praise to you? I am worn out. With my cries, I have flooded my couch all the night. And with my tears, I have flooded my bed. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and it has grown dark before all my enemies. Flee from me, all you doers of wickedness, for Yahweh has heard the voice of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my pleading. Yahweh will take my prayer. They will be ashamed, and they will be terrified exceedingly, all of my enemies, and they will return 
and they will be ashamed in a moment. This is God's word. Let's go before him in prayer as we begin tonight. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Psalms, and we thank you specifically this evening for Psalm 6. We pray, Lord, that you would work powerfully through your word and that you would show us what it is that you want us to learn from it. Help your word to be spoken in truth this evening, we pray in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I have found that it has been much easier to watch more television during this whole coronavirus pandemic than ever before. I don't know how much TV you're watching, and quite frankly, it's not like I watch that much TV, but it's definitely easier to be tempted to watch more TV because you know, we're at home all the time. And I don't know if you've got a favorite show. Maybe you've got a specific show that you like to tune into, or that you like to find on Netflix or Amazon or something and watch that, and you're enjoying that these days. But my particular, uh, really my favorite TV show of all time, as a TV show called Smallville. Now some of you have maybe heard of Smallville before, some of you maybe haven't heard of Smallville, that's alright. Uh, the show ran, I think it was from like 2001 to 2011 or something, so it was a 10 year show, 10 seasons, so quite a long show. And Smallville was about Superman, alright? But don't think like a superhero TV show so much, that wasn't quite what it was. Most TV shows and movies about Superman focus on him wearing his suit, you know, and flying around, saving the world, and that sort of thing. But Smallville was very different. It wasn't a cartoon, it was a live-action show. And Smallville was a show about Superman when he was in high school, right before he became Superman, when he was the nerdy, awkward kid in high school who had all of these abilities, but he couldn't show anybody, and he had to keep it a secret. And so it's a fantastic plot for a TV show. And in the show, pretty much every episode is pretty predictable. In the show, there was a point in the show where there's always a villain or some kind of bad guy, like a bank robber or a thief or something, that Clark Kent, Superman, was going to uh, try to catch because he stumbled upon some crime and he's going to solve the crime with his, his superpowers while he's in high school. And so Clark is going after the bad guy pretty much every episode and almost perfectly every time some kryptonite shows up in the episode that puts Clark in some position where he's about to die. Because you remember kryptonite, the green rocks that remove Superman's powers anytime he's around them. And just as Clark is about to catch the bad guy, some kind of kryptonite just happens to be laying on the ground, and suddenly he gets weak and can't do anything. Uh, it's pretty predictable in the show. But what I noticed throughout the show is almost every episode had the same pattern. There would be a period of darkness, a period of, of despair, where you would think all hope is lost. And suddenly something would happen where the hero would still be able to triumph. Clark was able to kick the kryptonite away, or some, one of his friends shows up at the last minute and removes the kryptonite, and he gets his powers back, and he's able to fight the villain. There's a period of despair and darkness, and then there's a period of triumph. And that's not unique to Smallville, right? That, that's pretty much the plot line of every movie and every book. You've got the, the black period, the dark period, and then you've got the period of triumph and success and rescue at the end. And the reason why that makes such a good story, why that works, 
is because when you have a period of darkness on the front end, that makes the period of triumph all the greater and all the sweeter and all the better and all the more rewarding and satisfying. Now, our text today has this pattern. And it has this pattern in a very dramatic way. The first part of our text shows despair. It shows sorrow. It shows the black moment. And then the latter part of the psalm shows the triumph, the rescue, and so on. So we're going to look at Psalm chapter 6 in three sections. First of all, we have David's recognition. All right, you've got David. David is the author of this psalm. Firstly, you've got David's recognition. He recognizes his sin and the consequences that his sin will reap upon him. Secondly, you have David's response. How does David respond to this recognition of sin in his life? And then thirdly, we have David's rescue. And this is the point in the psalm where David is rescued by a gracious God. Alright, so we've got David's recognition, David's response, and David's rescue. Let's take a look at this psalm a bit more carefully at the first section here. First of all, we have David's recognition in verse 1. Here, listen to, the, to what the text says. O Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger, and do not chastise me in your wrath. There's a couple of things we notice here about David's recognition. Okay, First of all, David recognizes that he committed sin. You see that? He recognizes that he committed sin. You say, well, wait a second, I don't see anything that says that he sinned here. Well, yeah, but notice what David is doing. He is recognizing that God is going to rebuke and chastise him for something. And the text doesn't say specifically what that is, but we can infer that's going to be sin. David is expecting God to be angry with him for something. God's going to chastise him. God's going to rebuke him. God's going to bring consequences on him, as Calvin put it. And David is expecting these consequences. And so what David does is he recognizes he has committed sin. And he's honest about it. He's honest that he's committed sin. Secondly, in David's recognition here, we see that sin has God-given consequences. Because you notice what David does here. He says, Yahweh, don't rebuke me. Don't chastise me in your anger. Don't chastise me in your wrath. But notice what he does here. He, he is expecting God to rebuke and chastise him for sin. So not only is David, is, is David uh, admitting that he committed sin, but he's expecting God to actually come upon him for this sin, to rebuke and chastise and bring consequences on him for his sin. And I think that's really huge, right? Because remember, David is a justified believer. Just like you and us in the New Testament, the only difference is he had faith in the coming Messiah. We have faith in the Messiah who has come and will come again. So David's a justified believer. And David here commits a sin, and he is expecting consequences. I think this is a little bit of a foreign concept, or at least a concept we don't think about so much today, at least many people. See, for some people, they have this sort of uh, bad karma, one-to-one -one correlation view between earthly suffering and sin. If some kind of suffering is happening to themselves or to somebody else, this particular Christian says, Oh, I know why that suffering is happening. 
some kind of sin. Every time you commit sin, there's suffering. One-to-one -one correlation. Always go together. And then you've got other Christians who see suffering and they see it purely coincidental. Yes, God is sovereign over it, but it's coincidental. Like, sin doesn't have like, particular consequences for Christians. You don't have to worry about that. And so there, there's no correlation between sin and consequences for that person. And what we need to see is that in Scripture, we need a balanced view. Right? We don't believe in bad karma in Scripture, right? God does not always bring earthly consequences on people for their sin, but He does sometimes. You remember in John chapter 9, Jesus and His disciples come and they find the man born blind. And the disciples ask, hey, that man's born blind. Look at those earthly consequences. Hey, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? And Jesus is like, hey, you're, both, you're wrong. Neither of those. Actually, this happened for the glory of God. And so what Jesus does there is he corrects a misunderstanding the disciples have. In fact, the disciples have committed the classical either-or logical fallacy. They said, all right, we see he sinned either, or sorry, we see he was blind, either he sinned or his parents sinned. And Jesus says, actually, there's a third option. The glory of God. And so what Jesus tells us is that when earthly consequences come upon people, when bad things happen, it can be because of personal sin, they're feeling the earthly consequences of that sin, like an adulterer has to deal with the family turmoil that was created because he or she committed adultery. So you've got the personal sin that could be the cause of consequences. Secondly, you've got the communal sin, the sins of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generation. And then, uh, thirdly, you've got the sin, or excuse me, you've got the glory of God. Sometimes suffering happens and earthly consequences happen just because God wants to test people. Because he's found Christians worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So, we don't want to have an a, a unhealthy, bad karma, one-to-one -one correlation between consequences and sin. But what we do need to recognize here what David is teaching us, and that is that David committed sin, and he is recognizing that God has the right to bring just consequences upon him, and he is actually expecting those consequences. And what David does here, I love how Calvin points this out in his commentary on the Psalms, what David does here is he says, God, don't, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chastise me in your Meaning, God, I accept the consequences for the sin that I've committed, but please hold back some of it. Don't give me the full measure of the consequences that I deserve. Have mercy on me, for I am weak. And I want you to see what David does here. David doesn't try to avoid the consequences. He's not saying, God, don't give me consequences for the sin. He recognizes he deserves the earthly consequences for his sin, whatever it may be. But what he does do is he says, God, please be gracious and don't bring upon me the full measure of the consequences. So that's David's recognition. And what I want you to see in David's recognition is he is honest. He recognizes that he has committed sin, 
He doesn't try to, to hide from it. He doesn't try to run away from it. He doesn't try to lie and say, well, I didn't really commit sin, sort of rationalize and create theological loopholes. No, he accepts responsibility. Oh, Yahweh, I have sinned, but please don't pour the full amount of consequences on me. So that's David's recognition of his sin. He's honest, and he sees what he's done. Secondly, in our text, we've got David's response, which is verses 2 through 7. Look at those with me. And it's in David's response that we see one of the most dramatic responses to sin in the Psalms, I think. Look with me in verses 2 through 7. I'll read them for us here. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am weak. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are terrified, and my soul is exceedingly terrified. And you, O Yahweh, how long? Return to me, O Yahweh. Rescue my soul. Save me according to your covenant faithfulness. For there is no one in death who remembers you. In Sheol, who will give praise to you? I am worn out. With my cries, I have flooded my bed all the night. And with my tears, I have flooded my bed. Notice David's turmoil here. Notice how sorrowful that he is. His sin, first of all, causes him to turn to God. You notice what David does in verse 2 right away. He recognizes his sin, recognizes God's going to bring consequences, and then his response, first of all, is to ask God for grace. First of all, in David's response, he turns to God David's sin causes him to turn to God. Now, is this what we do? Maybe sometimes. Oftentimes, though, what we do when we sin, and myself included, all of us, I think, is that we turn away from God. Think about Adam and Eve. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. What did they do? Did they turn to God and ask Him for grace? Be gracious to me, O God. Heal me, O God. We ate the fruit. We're sorry. We've been crying all night about it. No, Adam and Eve didn't do that. They ran from God. They hid from God. A fool's errand. But they did it. They did exactly the opposite of what David did here. And God was ashamed of them. He rebukes them for that. And I feel like sometimes we're more like Adam and Eve than we are like David. Oftentimes we try to run away from God when we commit sin. Now, maybe not physically. We don't say to our family, all right, I'm going to run from God. Let's go to Albuquerque. No, we don't say things like that. We're not going to physically run from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But oftentimes we can intellectually run away from God when we commit sin. And we can do that in a number of ways. Just as a couple of examples, think about this. We may just choose to ignore our sin. We know what we did is wrong. We know that it was bad, that it was sinful and against the law of God. But what we choose to do, instead of dealing with it or turning to God or repenting and asking for forgiveness or being sorrowful for that sin, what we do is we simply ignore it. We know it's wrong and we ignore it. We choose not to think about it. We choose to set it in the back of our minds to be forgotten. That's not turning to God. 
Another example of a way that we might run from God intellectually is we might invent theological or biblical reasons as to why we don't need to follow a particular law or why a particular law is not sinful. Our culture is very good at this today. Many Christians and so-called Christians want to make the case that, well, adultery really isn't so bad, especially, you know, premarital sexual relations. The Bible never really forbids that. Don't worry about it. You're free to be you. You're free to do whatever you want. And what are they doing? They are rationalizing something that is clearly presented as sinful in the scriptures. And they write it off as not being sinful. And we can point fingers at them and say, man, how can you do that? It's so clear in Scripture that you need to follow this law. This is what God commands to do, otherwise it's sin. But yet we do the same thing oftentimes. We just do it with other things. David doesn't run from God. What David does is he turns to God in his sin. He is honest with God. He recognizes his sin, and in response he turns to God. Right? Secondly, David's sin causes him great anguish. David's sin causes him great anguish. Just look at the language in this psalm. His bones quake. His soul is terror-stricken. How long, O God? He cries himself to sleep every night. He floods his bed with tears. Do you see this? His eyes have grown dim from vexation. That is, his countenance, his face, is pale. It has lost its radiance. It has lost its rosy redness. It, he looks dead on the outside. His physical appearance is being affected by his intellectual turmoil and his spiritual turmoil. David is in great anguish over his sin. He is in total sorrow. Now here's the question, are we like that? When we commit sin, do we respond in sorrow? Now I'm not saying that every time we commit a sin, we should cry ourselves to sleep for the next week. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. This is a very dramatic portrayal, but what, what David's showing us here is really our emotional state. How should we respond when we sin? We should respond when we recognize our sin. We should respond with sorrow. We have offended a holy God. We have transgressed His laws. We should feel terrible about that. Because we love God. And He loves us. And all He wants is what's best for us. And yet, every time we sin, we willfully rebel against Him and His holiness. And that should cause us to be sorrowful. But I think too often, that's not how we feel. Too often when we sin, we find it annoying. We find it as a slight inconvenience where we're like, oh, whoops, whoops, sin, whoops, shouldn't be doing that. We shrug it off as a mistake. And we act like it's no big deal. That's not what David does. David doesn't shrug his sin off as a mistake. He is in sorrow and turmoil over it. That's a godly response. This is the first step of true repentance, isn't it? A godly sorrow over sin. 
So that's David's response. And, he, and in this response, David shows us how sin should make us feel. We shouldn't shrug sin off as a mere mistake. We should be in anguish over sinning against a holy God. So David recognizes his sin. David responds to his sin in great sorrow, in godly sorrow. And then in our third section, verses 8 through 10, we have David's rescue. David's rescue. And here's the triumph. This is where the good part of the story comes in, the, the really happy part, the part we're all waiting for, David's rescue. Here we go, verse 8. Flee from me, all of you doers of wickedness, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my crying. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh will take my prayer. They will be ashamed and they will be terrified exceedingly, all of my enemies. And they will return and they will be ashamed in a moment. Two things we see in David's rescue here. Firstly, we see that David's accusers will be put to shame. His accusers haven't showed up in the psalm yet, but using other psalms as examples, and just because they show up here at the end of the psalm, we can actually see that, that evil people, unbelievers, and maybe even spiritual enemies like the devil, they rejoice when they see God's people suffering. You see, David has been suffering in this psalm, hasn't he? He's been expecting consequences for his sin. He's been expecting God to bring judgment on him. And he's been in utter turmoil. White in the face. Crying himself to sleep every night. He's not been himself. Constantly praying and asking God for grace. You can imagine David's enemies would be looking at him and saying, Hi, look at David. He feels so guilty. He's in so much pain. This is great. I hope it keeps going. I enjoy watching this. Those are David's enemies. And you can imagine the devil is certainly doing this. The devil loves when God's people suffer. The devil loves when God's people receive consequences for their sin. The devil loves it when God's people are sorrowful because they have committed sin. He loves to see God's people suffer. And what does David say about earthly and spiritual enemies? Well, for him, he says that when Yahweh finally answers his prayer, that his enemies will be ashamed instantly, immediately. And why will they be ashamed? Because the suffering of God's people doesn't last forever. The sorrow over sin and the turmoil and the consequences for sin doesn't last forever because it needs to move somewhere. Godly sorrow is great, but if you stay in godly sorrow forever, you've missed the whole point of what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow needs to move to repentance and forgiveness, and that's what happens to David here. David moves to his rescue. And at the time of his rescue, here in verse 8, he says, Flee from me, all you doers of evil. Get out of here, my enemies. Why should you get out of here? Why should you be ashamed in a moment? Why should you be greatly terrified, O enemies? It's because Yahweh has heard my prayer. 
And you remember what David's prayer was? The very beginning of his prayer. Verse 1, he's expecting rebuke and chastisement, but his requests begin in verse 2, where he says, Show grace to me, O Yahweh. Show grace to me. And so firstly, in David's rescue, his accusers, his enemies will be put to shame. Secondly, David's pleas were not in vain. We see this in his rescue. His pleas were not in vain because he prayed that God would have grace on him and God answered his pleas. And God brought the grace on David that he asked for. David's pleas were not in vain. He repeats three times that Yahweh heard him. And so even in the midst of despair and anguish and godly sorrow over the sin that he's committed, God shows up. The black moment is over. The triumph has come as David approaches the throne of grace. And he finds forgiveness in Yahweh God. As you can see, this is a dramatic, fantastic, encouraging psalm for all of us as Christians. And there's a number of things here that I want to draw to your attention that we need to take home, that we need to take to the bank with us when we turn off this recording, wherever we may be. Firstly, we need to see David shows us true repentance. Do we recognize sin honestly like David? Do we recognize sin like David? Like, we, like I said before, too often, I think, we don't honestly assess our sin. We try to excuse it away. We ignore it. We run from God intellectually. Do we honestly recognize sin in our hearts? Don't try to create theological loopholes. Don't try to create logical loopholes. Just recognize sin for that heinousness that it is. Do we recognize our sin honestly, like David? He shows us true repentance. True repentance requires that we see our sin. Secondly, do we respond to our sin with sorrow, like David? Here again, he shows us true repentance. Do we respond with godly sorrow? Or do we shrug sin off as a mistake, as a whoops? As a, well, it's not a big deal because I'm justified. You realize what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, don't you? He asked a rhetorical question to his Roman readers. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, what Paul is saying is you do not, as Christians, have the ability to just go on sinning and expecting God to forgive you. That's actually the heart of unbelief. You don't get to continue in sin, hoping that God's grace may increase to cover all that sin. No. Godly people live lives in accordance with Jesus. That's sanctification right there. So you don't get to rationalize sin by appealing to, to Jesus and our justification. Sin is sin. And so do we respond to our sin, not with a clever theological loophole, but rather do we respond with godly sorrow like we see David doing here? Does sin make us sad? 
Does our sin make us feel sorrowful that we violated the laws of a holy God whom we love? Because that's what it should do. And that's what it did for David. Thirdly and finally, do we seek God's grace in Christ like David? Do we turn to God like David? Do we turn to the throne of grace and say, Oh God, I have sinned. Heal me. Be gracious to me. Save me according to your covenant faithfulness. Do we turn to Christ who has merited for us salvation, who has paid our sin debt in full and has imputed to us his righteousness so that we can be justified before God? Do we turn to God in Christ and seek his grace like David? Because, folks, that's what we need to do. David here shows us, Psalm 6 here shows us what repentance looks like. And it shows us where we find our rescue. We recognize our sin. We respond to our sin in godly sorrow for offending the God whom we love. And then we turn to God in Christ and we find there forgiveness and grace. And it covers all of our transgressions. And we praise our God because he has rescued us. He has heard our prayer. See folks, it is in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers to us that we find our rescue. Let's pray and thank him for that as we close here. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Psalm 6. We thank you for the great message that you have for us here. Lord, we thank you for David and for the example that he sets for us here. He shows us we need to recognize that we have sinned before you. We need to be honest about that. We shouldn't try to hide it. We shouldn't try to run away from it. No. We need to recognize we have sinned and that sin is going to bring consequences. Lord, we thank you that David also shows us what godly sorrow looks like. But he shows us that we should be in anguish over sin. Not in an unhealthy way, not in a crazy way. But we should feel bad. We should feel terrible. We should be sorrowful that we have sinned against you when we do. And Lord, lastly and finally, we thank you that this psalm teaches us that you provide rescue. That you've not left us in sorrow. You have not left us in the black moment with the kryptonite of sin binding us and holding us powerless. You've not left us in the black moment, God. You have shown us trauma. You have provided your Son, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished for us the forgiveness of sins and who has covered all of our sins by his blood and has given us his righteousness. And Lord, we thank you that when we seek your throne of grace, we find that forgiveness has already been accomplished and that your Son paid the price. And Lord, we rejoice as those justified by your grace. Lord, help us to find this forgiveness of sins 
change our hearts so that we leave here living lives to your glory and your honor for all of our days. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.